So good morning. Uh, Ryan dismissed the children, so let's dig in. I'm going to get rid of this thing here. Uh, my name is Tyler Clements. If I haven't met you or if you're new here, um, I am the, so I'm not hiding, putting the microphone away. Um, I am the pastor to youth and worship here at Grace, and I am, um, yeah, I'm grateful for this opportunity this morning to to minister to the sacraments and to bring the Word of God uh, in our sermon today, because this is what God has ordained to sustain us. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, if you were here uh, last week, you remember that it was Easter in November, right? He is risen. Awesome. So, I've gotten you to say amen and he is risen. All right, so you can't fault Presbyterians for not being expressive here. Come on. Uh, so turn in your Bible to, to John 20, as we were reminded last week of this truth that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is risen. And uh, Peter and John were there, they saw the, the grave clothes and then ran home, potentially in excitement that Mary was there and she saw the grave clothes as well, but was sad and weeping. And then she had an interaction with the risen Christ that changed her life. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is the rest of this chapter where Jesus appears yet again, but this time it's to, to more disciples. And let me just say at the outset here that um, I'm very thankful that the Lord in his kindness and through the divinely inspired authors of the Bible have these last portions of the gospel here for us to read. And the reason I say that is because um, it could have been really easy, right, to just kind of fade out and say this is the end, you know, Christ is risen and, and death is conquered and, and he's victorious, you know, hallelujah, end of story, the end, right? And I'm thankful because God knows the first century Jewish audience that would be reading this and they would have questions. And God also knows that humans throughout centuries have questions, even in 2023. You're telling me a, a guy was killed and then he came back to life? Hold on a second. Hold on a second, I have some questions. That's a pretty supernatural event. You're just expecting me to take this. And so God keeps the story going for us to address some of those doubts, address some of those questions we might have. What does happen after Jesus resurrected? What does he say? And where does he go? What's his message? And so as we prepare to read John 20, starting at verse 19, let's bow our heads and pray for the spirit to illuminate for us to understand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word this morning, we pray for your spirit to give us understanding that you would capture our hearts and that you would reveal to us Jesus. Help us not just see this as a story, the story that in history it is, but to be changed by it, by your spirit. Jesus, you are alive and your word is alive, so cause it to bring life in us now as your word is proclaimed. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So John 20, uh, beginning of verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. 
Now, Thomas was one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And we say together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, we love to be amazed, don't we? We love to be amazed. We stand in the streets of Lawrence, Kansas during the Busker Festival, and we're amazed at how a grown man can fit himself through the frame of a tennis racket. I'm not kidding, I saw it with my very eyes. <laughs> or how a guy can stand on a 20-foot pole or so on one leg, juggling chainsaws, only held steady by two ropes held by volunteer audience members. It was amazing. Or maybe even the ability to stand amazed if you've ever been to Worlds of Fun and seen that insane ride called the Ripcord that you have to pay extra money for, right? It's this 189-foot free fall where you're harnessed in, in a prone position, right? And it's a swing, basically, so when you get enough courage, you pull the lever or button or whatever or say, go. <laughs> I don't know what it is. You swing up to 60 to 80 miles an hour through the air until you swing back and forth until you stop or get sick or whatever would happen. Now, you might be amazed at this, and I surely have when I've watched this happen, and I might even, you might even believe it's safe enough to try. But you still might not have faith enough to do it. And the disciples have witnessed something in John 20 that left them amazed. But God doesn't intend for people just to stand by amazed at this supernatural miracles of his son Jesus. He means for something more. He means for faith, for belief, such that it actually does change your life. Uh, one pastor and author put it this way. He said, God doesn't just want to blow your mind. He wants to rule your heart. And so what we see here in John 20 are hearts that are being taken over by belief in the rule and reign of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And so the Apostle Paul actually stated it in the negative in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But here's the good news. The good news is that Christ is raised from the dead and that changes everything. And so I have three points for us this morning and they're simple, it's this, that because Jesus is alive, we have peace, we have purpose, and we have proof. We have peace in a world filled with fear, filled with uncertainty, a world filled with sorrow and filled with difficulties, in a world that's groaning, subject to futility, in hope, 
but subject to futility, the resurrected Christ brings peace to us. We have purpose. We have purpose that when, when Jesus resurrected, he gave us a job to do. We have a role to play in this, friends. We have a purpose. And then thirdly, he, he gives us proof. We see proof that our faith is rooted in something that actually happened, an historical event that happened based on the eyewitnesses of, of hundreds of people and based on the authoritative word of God itself. And so here's the thing. We know our hearts. We know our hearts. We know that we can be a doubting, fearful, and disbelieving people. And so we have this before us to give us assurance. You see, the resurrection of Jesus was a miracle. And I'm, I know I'm stating the obvious here, but let's just think about this for a second, okay? That Jesus was killed and then he came back to life. Like what? I, you know, I, we talk about, go with me here, we talk about like when a woman is pregnant, okay? And we ask her, like, we know she's expecting a baby, and we go, oh, how sweet, we rejoice with her, and we ask her questions like, are you experiencing morning sickness, or do you have any weird cravings, or, you know, are you having a hard time sleeping at night? Well, other mothers can empathize with that. But, but you know, Think about why a, a, an expecting mother is feeling all those things. It's because a pregnant woman is growing another human being inside of her body. I, I don't know about you, but when I started to think about it, I'm like, that's kind of weird. Like, I know it's how he's ordained it, but that's kind of shocking to me because as a guy, this concept just blows me away that I, that I would grow another human inside of me. It freaks me out. Not to mention that this human being growing inside of me would actually one day leave my body, and I'm gonna stop there with any explanation. <laughs> but here's my point in bringing this up, is when you think about it, it is really pretty miraculous. It is really pretty miraculous, and I think we can do this sometimes when we say Jesus rose from the dead, like he resurrected. We're talking about an actual human being whose heart stopped, whose lungs stopped breathing air, and he died, and then there was a moment where boom, boom, started beating again, where breath entered his lungs and he came back to life. Like, it's really amazing. There's only one explanation for this, and that's if this human was actually fully divine as well, if he really was God in flesh. So don't just stand by in amazement at the risen Christ, the miracle of the resurrection. This morning, I want you to ask yourself, do I really believe this? Not just believe that it happened, but do I have belief such that it changes how I live? And this is, I believe, what the Lord is after in this passage of Scripture, that he wants for us to see that believing in the resurrection actually does change us, that it takes away fears, fears of being condemned because we know our sin to be great and we feel the guilt and shame of it that he gives us purpose for our days here on earth until he returns again. And that the resurrection gives us confidence that our God is not like any of the other gods. Our God is alive. And so I know I said I had three points. I wasn't kidding. Number one, the resurrection of Christ brings us peace. Let's reread verse 19 again. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, when John says that day, the first day of the week, he's emphasizing for us that we're still on the Resurrection Sunday, that it's still Easter, but now we're in the evening. 
And we find that the disciples are in a room with doors locked, hiding away. And the reason the doors are locked, I believe, accomplishes two purposes for us. First, it shows us the fear that the disciples had because they were afraid the Jewish leaders would probably try and find the followers of Jesus and perhaps arrest and kill them as well like they did to Jesus. So they were fearful. But the second reason the doors are locked is I think to show us that locked doors uh, are not a problem for the resurrected Christ. Scripture says that Jesus came and stood among them. Now how exactly Jesus stood among them, we don't know. Except to deduce this, that the resurrected body, our resurrected bodies are different than our present bodies. The Apostle Paul speaks some of what a believer's body will be like after the resurrection. In Philippians 3, verse 21, he says that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 40, Paul says, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. See, there's a difference between the bodies we have now and the bodies we will have in eternity. And we do know that Jesus' resurrected body was not a ghost. He actually ate food with the disciples. In this same account of this appearance in Luke 24, we'll look at here in a second, he eats with them. And also, in the next chapter, in the coming weeks, as we get through that, we'll see Jesus had breakfast with the disciples on the beach. He was able to eat. And even Mary, when she saw Jesus, after she noticed the tomb was empty, what? She thought he was the gardener, right? He had enough physical characteristics, and yet the body of Jesus was freed from certain physical limitations. He could go through locked doors. One commentator put it this way, the one who could pass through the grave clothes and leave a neat pile behind would not find locked doors any obstacle. And so Jesus stands among them and he says, peace be with you. And it's an apt greeting. It's appropriate for the disciples. They were, they were scared. They were fearful. They were probably freaked out also at the presence of Jesus standing in front of them because they had seen him die. They needed peace in that moment. And they could have received a lot of things from Jesus. They could have received blame, you know, accusing him. Why, why, were you, why did you leave me in my darkest moment? But instead, Jesus brings them peace. And in verse 20, when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. See, Jesus repeats again as if they didn't get it. Peace be with you. He wants them to know that instead of hostility, now there is peace. You don't have to fear anymore. And how do we know this? Because you look at his hands and you look at his side. See, the wounds of Jesus, his scars are proof that this hostility between God and man is now taken away. That the scars show that through what Jesus accomplished on the cross by his death, we now have forgiveness. As it says in Romans 5.1, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to him because we were once his enemies. And because of the cross, now we're forgiven. Later in Romans 5.10, he says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved 
through his life. So we see this peace is with God, that sins are forgiven, but you know, we also have peace of God. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this makes sense to us as we're about to enter into the season of Advent, right? You know the heavenly host, what they sang at the birth of Christ, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is such a wonderful word for the disciples because they've been through a very difficult, you could even say a traumatic week of their lives, seeing their rabbi, seeing their friend tortured and killed at the hands of angry men. And his disciples are agitated, they're fearful, they're confused, probably wondering what comes next. And here Jesus comes and stands among them and says, peace be with you. Now there's a contrast here because the world in which we live will often say this, if you look for peace, here's, what, here's how you do it. You look inside yourself. You look for that quiet, calm, and peace that's inside. You maybe you know, turn the lights dim and you light a candle and turn on some vibey, lo-fi, hip-hop music and, and there you're gonna find the peace you're looking for, right? But here's the thing. It's not gonna be found deep inside your soul because the reason is that there are still seeds of turmoil and unrest deep inside here. We need a peace that comes from outside of us. A peace that comes into our lives. That's actually what we're all longing for. You remember back when we were in John 14, Jesus' words, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. You hear that? Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid. See, this peace is something Jesus gives to us, and it's exactly what the disciples needed, and it's exactly what you and I need. And so, where do you look for peace in your life? You know, I often think things are busy, things are stressful right now, so when I get past this, right, then it'll be peaceful. Or when I get done with this thing in my life, or when this deadline comes and goes, then, ah, it will be all good. But you know what? Life keeps going, doesn't it? Just when you get done with that one thing, there's another thing. And so it's not just the absence of stress or busyness or activity. The peace of God that we need is knowing that whatever situation we're in, that our sins are forgiven and that he is with us and that he has not left us and that he has given us a purpose. We can still have peace no matter how stressed and how busy and how crazy things are. Um, I love how we sang it this morning um, in the song, I Have a Peace. That second verse, we sang, I have a peace when fears arise and when waters roar around me through many storms and sleepless nights. Here's what happens. The peace of God gives this, a quiet grace surrounds me. Maybe you've known that. I know not what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. When all I fear is all that's true, your perfect love is truer. I have a peace with God and man, for you've reconciled me. I was at war. You came a friend to serve and stand beside me. You see, take your greatest fears and what's the biggest threat, perhaps, to your peace right now, and line it up against and in front of the grace and love of God, 
And you'll see that God's love is truer, it's better, it's bigger. So we need to stop looking to the world for the peace that we really long for and receive, ask for the peace that Jesus gives us. And so after Jesus twice reminds them, right, of the peace that he brings to them, he gives them a task, he gives them a job to do. And so that's where the second point is, that the resurrection of Christ gives us purpose. It gives us purpose. Uh, In verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This line, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So we see the obedience of Christ. Remember as he prayed in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, as you sent me into the world, Father, I have sent them into the world. And so to understand this task of being sent, I think we have to ask, so how did the Father send the Son? Right? That will help us then know how we are to be sent. And here's how God sent his Son. He sent him into the world humbly. He sent him into the world as a servant. He sent him as a proclaimer of peace and of a kingdom that had come that will never end. And he sent him into the world as a sacrifice. See, the Father sent the Son with a message. And so Jesus sends us with a message to go out into the world to proclaim. But here's the thing. Before we share the message, we need something. (laughs) And it's essential. We need the Spirit's power. And this is in verse 23, when Jesus breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this can be a bit confusing, right? Because you probably remember later in Acts 2, when um, the day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. Like, so were there two times when Jesus sent the Spirit? Now it's interesting, this is the only time this phrase is used in the New Testament that Jesus breathed on them. The only other time it's used in the Bible is in the story of creation, in Genesis 2, 7, when God formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. See, the same animating breath of God that breathed life into his disciples was the giving of the Spirit for this task that we have, a task that's not an easy task if we're being honest. So however you understand the giving of the Spirit here and however that fits with God sending his Spirit in Acts 2, the point here I think for us is that as we are being sent out into the world, as we will do here in a few moments, right? We go back to our lives and to our workplaces and to our schools as God sends us as he does every week from this place. We have got to be Spirit-led. We are unable to change the hearts of people From unbelief to belief, that's a work of God. Only Jesus can do this, as we'll see here in a minute with Thomas. We have got to be spirit-led. We have got to enter every situation in our life saying, God, lead me, help me, empower me, so that I can bring the love, the peace of Christ to whatever situation I am in. It's fascinating, actually, to read this parallel account in Luke 24. So let's turn there. Don't just take my word for it. Luke 24, and we see this perspective from another writer, which is helpful because there are certain details here that we don't have in John. 
In Luke 24, verses 36 through 45, we pick up, as they were talking about these things, they the disciples, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Some say this is the moment when he breathed on them. This is an effect. This is a result of the spirit filling us is that we have understanding. And this fits with what the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit does. Among many things, the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates hearts, but also opens eyes to see Jesus as Savior and to bring understanding to what is really true in this world. And so the task, as the Lord Jesus says in 25, verse 25 in, in Luke 20, is that if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. John Calvin is helpful who commented on this passage. He said, when Christ enjoins or encourages the disciples to forgive sins, he does not convey to them what is belonging to himself. It belongs to him to forgive sins. He only urges them in his name to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. And even in this passage from Luke that we've read, Jesus tells them in verse 47 that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And this is exactly what the Spirit is empowering his disciples to do, and that's exactly what our task and our purpose is. And so there's another aspect here, though, of being sent that we can't miss as the Father sent the Son, so we are sent, and it's this, that Jesus became incarnate. He entered into our world to identify with us, and so too, we cannot retreat, can we? We, would rather, we need to rather enter into the worlds of people around us to bring this message of forgiveness and peace through Christ. Um, there's a, a good book that's helpful in talking to others about Jesus uh, by a, a pastor in England called, Re his name is Rico Tice, but the book is called Honest Evangelism. I'm going to read a little bit of this for us as we think about being sent as Christ was sent incarnate to identify with us. He says this, how can we witness effectively in the time and place God has placed us in? He says, I think it means two things. First, witnessing takes time and effort. The days when you could go from zero to gospel in a single conversation are not the norm. Keep praying for it, but don't be discouraged by it not happening. It's very rare for someone to meet a Christian, come as a guest to a service the next month, and then sign up for a Christianity Explored type of course. Research suggests that when people put their faith in Christ, on average, it's taken two years from the point when they come into meaningful contact with a Christian who witnessed to them, and that time period is growing. 
Witnessing is a long-term commitment to invest in a relationship, to pray tirelessly and to speak the gospel over and over again, patiently and persistently. It's a journey of gospel conversations. It really does take effort. And second, he says, it takes you. (laughs) It's harder and harder to take people to hear the Bible taught. You need to take the Bible to them. People who would never consider stepping into a church will feel far less threatened reading and talking about the Bible with a friend. And then he has a couple paragraphs of what that might look like. But he wraps up by saying this, of course, it can also, for the Christians, seem slightly intimidating or demanding. You're no longer saying, come and listen to an expert at my church. You're saying, sit and chat about the Bible with me. And you're no longer simply inviting friends to a carol service or a gospel talk or whatever else it is that your church is putting on. You're needing to commit your time and energy as well as risk being vulnerable. But remember, this is why God, in his sovereignty, has put you where you are. His grace is sufficient for you. His power is enough to open anyone's eyes. We aren't all called to be Bible teachers, but we can all be Bible sharers. And in the culture we live in, we will need to be. Now, to be sure, we are not the incarnate Christ, right? But Jesus is sending us in the pattern in which he was sent, that we talk with people, we live life alongside people. In humility, we serve people, we love them, and we proclaim that God's kingdom is here. Now, what happens when our message is being met with some resistance? What happens when people don't believe? And that's where we find our friend Thomas. And that brings us to our third point this morning. The resurrection of Jesus is proof for us, that our faith is based on something very real. Uh, Back to John 20, uh, verse 24. Now Thomas was one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now what do we know about Thomas? We know that for nearly 2,000 years, Thomas has received a lot of bad press. Uh, He's been given the name Doubting Thomas, right? That's how we know of him. Now, I would like to attempt to set the record straight this morning. I think the Bible presents another side of Thomas. His primary problem, I don't think, was his doubting. It was that he was simply a pessimist. (laughs) He was kind of a glass-half-empty kind of guy. Like, he seemed to look for the negative side in every situation, he was skeptical, but here's the thing. He was the, his skepticism was of the right kind. It was a skepticism that still remained open to belief, open to being convinced of what was true. But Thomas just seemed to have a bit of a gloomy disposition. He, he's only mentioned two other times in John's gospel, but these are very revealing interactions for us. Um, you might remember in John 11 when we were there months ago, uh, the story of the death of Jesus' friend Lazarus, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to need to go to Bethany to save him, to help him, to heal him, which was near Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, there were Jewish leaders, as we know at this point in the narrative. They were trying to arrest and to kill Jesus. And so upon hearing Jesus say this, Thomas looked to his friends, his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Wow, way to boost the morale there, Tommy. That's really helpful that we need that word of encouragement to follow Jesus. 
Also in John 14, Jesus is speaking about the fact that he's going to go ahead of them, that he's going to prepare a place for them in his father's house. And I get that. That's probably a little bit like, wow, my father's house. So you're talking about after this life. Okay, hold on. Let me wrap my brain around this. And and Thomas, I think, is more of a black and white guy because his response to Jesus was, Lord, we do not know the way you're going. How can we know the way? It's like, why are you speaking so vaguely about this father's house and this room? And he's like, how are we going to know the way? Just give me the coordinates. I'll put it in my GPS, right? I just want to know where to go. That's the deal. He's a very black and white person. So as it happened, that resurrection day evening, when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the locked room, Thomas wasn't there. He missed Jesus. And we don't know where Thomas was. Perhaps in his cynicism, he just wanted to get away from other people. I I can't handle this tragedy of the death of Christ, so I'm going to remove myself. We don't know why he wasn't there, but he missed an opportunity that was very, very important. Perhaps would have avoided this whole doubting Thomas moniker. See, the other disciples tried to persuade him then, even for a whole week. We have seen the Lord, they tell him. But that's not enough for Thomas. That's not enough. These other 10 people, remember, because Judas was not there, um, who I assume Thomas trusts, the rest of these disciples, like they were friends with, probably hung out, and they did. They spent a lot of time together. He wouldn't believe them. He states rather emphatically, perhaps stubbornly, unless I see and touch the scars and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. And so, verse 26 Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, I've just paused here. I love how John repeats yet again, the doors were locked. Like, he didn't want us to miss this really cool, miraculous ability of the resurrected Christ. To be like, the doors were locked, and he got in. Okay, I just want to make sure you knew that he did that again. Like, that's pretty amazing. And this was eight days later, right? This was eight days later after Jesus first appeared to them, but this time, here, Thomas was there. Now, eight days later would be on the the next Sunday evening, and it might be a little confusing as you count days, but in ancient Jewish culture, they count days differently than we do. They count the present day as one, So, which is why when we say Jesus died on Good Friday but rose again three days later, right? Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days later. And so eight days later, from this first appearing in this room would have been the next Sunday where Jesus appeared to the disciples gathered together, but this time Thomas was with them. And so Jesus stands among them, and what does he say again, right? Peace be with you. But then he directly addresses Thomas. And I just sidebar here. Don't ever forget that Jesus knows you, that he knows where you're at, He knows what's going on in your life. He knows the stress, the the struggles, the trials, the things that that are really getting you under right now. Just think about how he addressed Thomas. Went right to him. And this is the same Christ that knows us and loves us. Now we don't know if John whispered in Jesus' ear before he said something, hey Thomas, it's been a tough week. Or I'm sorry, hey Jesus, Thomas has had a tough week. Like, he doesn't believe us. We've been trying to convince him, and he just keeps, you know, talk to the hand. Like, we we don't, I'm not going to believe you. Like, can you say something to him? But Jesus, I don't think, needs that because he knows. And he tells him in verse 27, put put your finger here 
and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And this response from Thomas is probably one of the most profound, clear proclamations of belief in Jesus we have recorded in Scripture. My Lord and my God. This is a turning point in Thomas's life where he comes to true belief in Jesus. I mean, he'd been with him, right? The past three or so years of his ministry, he'd seen all the signs and the wonders that Jesus has done. But Thomas now claims that Jesus is his Lord. He's professing, there's not going to be any other ruler over my life. He's submitting to the lordship of Christ. He's not going to keep this part of his life kind of apart from Jesus, but then yes, you can rule over this part. No, he's saying, have it all. Rule over my whole life. In John 1.1, you remember, in the beginning was the word, and the word was, God, word was with God, and the word was God. And Thomas sees, clearer now than he ever has, that this Jesus standing before him is God, his Lord. And the crazy thing is that it seems like he didn't even have to touch the wounds, the scars of Jesus, even though he was invited to. He didn't. And yet he still believed All he had to do, all he had to do was to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world standing in front of him, scars and all to prove. So what changed Thomas's mind? And here's what I think changed his mind. Obviously the Spirit of God at work, but also seeing the man who lived and died for him on the cross, seeing the love of God revealed in the wounds of Calvary. Now there are a handful of things I think we can learn from the life of Thomas, here are two. Thomas could have saved himself a week of struggling and doubt had he been in the room that first night, right? Doubting Thomas, we'd have no idea. I brought that up this morning, be like, I don't know what that is, right? If you were been there that first night, but you weren't. Now, I don't wanna press this application too hard, but I do wonder if there's something here for us, you guys, that when we miss out on Christian fellowship, when we miss out on Sunday mornings from gathering of the saints, we miss out on seeing Jesus. Thomas sought to be alone rather than together and he missed out. That sermon that you miss, it may be the word for your soul that you didn't know you needed. The songs and the prayers may be exactly what your heart needed to be quickened and to be renewed. And when we're filled with sorrow, when we're filled with sadness and distress, we tend to retreat. We tend to want to be by ourselves, but we have to resist that urge. We still need to be around the fellowship of the body of Christ no matter what situation we find ourselves in. We can also learn this from Thomas, that to whatever degree you may have doubt today, that the best remedy for your doubt is to encounter Jesus, is to look at Jesus, to see his scars, to see his wounds, and to see the love with which he has loved you and me. And even within the church, right, even within this community of faith, we find that there are many who still struggle with doubt. Over the years of youth ministry, I've talked with many teenagers who approach me with questions and doubts about God, does he really exist? Is he really there? Does he really care for me? And while there's all sorts of apologetic methods, right, there's all sorts of ways in which you can help convince people and defend the faith, 
my best apologetic, our best apologetic is to tell people to have an encounter with Jesus. Have you met Jesus? Have you seen him? And when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we're seeing Jesus. When we gather for Bible studies, we're looking at Jesus. When we gather for life groups or for youth group on Wednesdays or catechids, it's about seeing Jesus, right? In fact, anytime that we meet together as a church and we make it not about Jesus, we've missed out. So Thomas was with Jesus for his many years of ministry. He was around the other disciples. He was in the community of Christ followers, yet he had doubts. And I want to just encourage you that it's completely normal for you to struggle with doubt. That's why this section of the Bible is here for you. Notice Thomas wasn't rebuked for his doubting, but he was told to reach out, to place his fingers and the nail marks and his hands and the spear marks on the side of Jesus. So let me encourage you today to follow Thomas's lead. And let's look at Jesus. And as you look at him, it's with eyes of faith, right? Rather than physical eyes, and Jesus knew this, he said, blessed are you who have not seen but yet have believed. We look to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. So have patience with yourself when you doubt. But stay plugged in to the body of Christ. Do not remove yourself. Keep looking to Jesus. If you're a doubter today, look at Jesus. And where is one of these places where you encounter Jesus? Well, we encounter Jesus right here at this table. At this table, our Lord instituted for us to participate in because this is a table where the Spirit of God is present in a unique way. This is a sacrament. This is a sign that points us to the love of God revealed in Jesus. This bread that points to the body of Christ, this this juice that points to the blood of Christ shed for us. You see, this table also points us to the peace that we have through Christ, through forgiveness of one who died in our place, one who took the wrath of God for us, one who forgives us of our sins. This points us to the, the purpose we have, that we need the Spirit's help, and he's here with us to empower us, to strengthen us, And this also points to the proof, like as you take this piece of bread and as you hold this this cup of juice and you taste it and you smell it and you experience it, you know that Jesus is real. He's given us this sign. And so we know that it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup After supper, in giving thanks, he said, this is the cup and the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you did not leave us by ourselves. You did not leave us to wonder, but you've given us very visible, tangible sign of your presence with us. And so, Father, I ask that in these moments now, as we come to this table, that you would bring those who are doubting to have confidence, that you would wipe the doubts away, that you would bring those who are fearful and struggling, that you would bring comfort 
and bring the confidence of your presence with them and in them. And God, as we do this together, never let us forget what a blessing it is to be a part of your body and to not miss out on seeing you. And so, Lord, I pray that you open our eyes in this time together, that we would see you, we'd behold you, and we would be able to say, as Thomas did, you are my Lord and you are my God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.